a minute, and I'm going to work with a PowerPoint a little bit today. So I'm in a sermon series on prophecies fulfilled in the Messiah. Prophecies fulfilled in the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled not many, but all of the prophecies related to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. He fulfilled all of the prophecies related to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. They were waiting for an anointed king. They were waiting for a savior to save us from our sins. And all through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, starting in the very, starting in the very beginning of time, we have the first prophecy that God will send a savior. And we talked about that three or so weeks ago. All through the Old Testament, they were waiting for somebody to save the people from their sins, save us from our sins. And I wonder, even as I'm thinking about this, this isn't in the notes, it's a freebie here. I wonder, as, even as I think about this, do we realize, do we realize right here, do we, you all, realize we need saved from our sins too? We all need a Savior. And I feel like many times in our culture, in our country, we forget that our sins have a consequence. They have a consequence with our relationships with our brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and children and nieces and nephews and co-workers and friends. And they have consequences, most of all, with God. We need a Savior. They recognize that in the Old Testament. Sin is contagious, always contagious. It always hurts people. Sin always has a cost. Sin always is a break in a relationship. They recognized that back in Bible times, generally better than we do today. They needed a Savior. So there were all these prophecies, over 300 of them, related to the Savior, the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. This is our first Sunday of Advent. And Advent means waiting. Advent means waiting. Throughout the Old Testament, they were waiting on a Savior. They were waiting on Jesus. And in certain churches, they celebrate Advent many times more than we do when they, they really act like it is a new waiting game. <laughs> For example, my last church, we wouldn't sing songs that dealt with the birth of Jesus as it had happened already until Christmas Eve, until Christmas Day, because then the Savior was really born again and you can celebrate it. Advent means waiting. They were waiting on Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, m- murdered killed, hung by the neck by the Nazis towards the end of World War II. And there's a great biography about him by Eric Metaxas about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian man, and he took part in the plot to kill Hitler called Valkyrie, the Valkyrie plot to kill Hitler. And uh, he wrote this. I have a lot of quotes today, so I'm using uh, PowerPoint so you can see them on the screen. Um, He wrote this. While waiting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, a few weeks before Advent, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a friend. This is the quote. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. He's in a prison cell. He's waiting. (laughs) He's hoping. He's doing various things. And he recognizes that the door to freedom has to be opened from the outside. Shortly after pinning those words, the Nazis executed Bonhoeffer, but he was right. The door of freedom for him and for us today, and for us today, is still open from the outside by the coming and second coming of Jesus. We could not save ourselves. 
If we could save ourselves, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. We can't be good enough. You still have the sin to take care of. So God sent his son. God became a human to save us. Uh, I, I read of a Hindu who could not believe in Christianity because he could not contemplate a God who would be so humble himself. Then one day, the Hindu came upon an anthill. He tried to get close enough to the ants to study them. But every time he bent low, his own shadow caused all the ants to scurry away. He recognized to himself that the only way in which he could ever come to know that colony of ants would be if he could somehow become an ant himself. And that was the moment at which his conversion began. We're going to jump into these passages. My theme is Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be born some 700 years later. Isaiah prophesying 700 years before Christ's birth prophesied Jesus' birth. In the application, since God is with us, we do not have to fear. God became a man, and we call this Emmanuel. Since God is with us, we do not have to fear. I'm going to look at the prophetic passages in the scriptures. Isaiah 7, 14 was just read. I have it on the screen again. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me give you some uh, brief context about this passage, as that will help you understand it more, more fully, more clearly. Isaiah was called a major prophet. In the Old Testament, we have major prophets and minor prophets. Major prophets would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. They were major prophets, not because they were greater than all the others, but because they wrote more content than many others. Isaiah, Isaiah's uh, writings are 66 chapters. They're quite lengthy. It takes something like three hours to read the book of Isaiah straight through. So Isaiah was called a major prophet. Isaiah prophesied to the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. At this time, the kingdom of Israel was divided. There was a major civil war in Israel, and they became a divided kingdom, a divided monarchy. We talked about that a number of, a number of weeks ago. And so Isaiah prophesied to both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel, both of them. Isaiah's ministry lasted over 60 years. 60 years. And he served under wicked kings as well as godly kings. Ahaz was the current king and he was not a godly king. During this time, Assyria, Assyria was the superpower in the Middle East at this day. And Assyria was advancing on the northern kingdom of Israel. They were trying to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And they soon would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria. Assyria kept on advancing to the southern kingdom of Israel, but the southern kingdom of Israel repented and turned to the Lord, and the Lord miraculously rescued them. And if you read the account of how the Lord uh, took care of the southern kingdom of Israel, it is absolutely amazing. So the northern kingdom will soon fall to Assyria. Understand that this is the backdrop by which Isaiah ministered for the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10, so we're putting this passage in context. So in in four verses before this, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10, Isaiah asked King Ahaz to ask for a sign from the Lord. Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and says, ask the Lord for a sign. And in Isaiah 7 12, Ahaz 
told Isaiah, no, no, I will not ask for a sign. Who are you? You're only a prophet. I'm not going to ask for a sign. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord responds with a sign anyways. The Lord said, you're going to be that way. Well, we'll give you a sign anyways. The neat thing, by the way, is Ahaz's sign is a sign for us as well. It's a prophecy about the Savior, a prophecy about the Messiah. A virgin will be with child. A virgin will be with child. In some translations, it might say maiden instead of virgin. For example, the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version, it says a maiden will be with child. To put it simply, the Hebrew word is translated maiden from the Hebrew Old Testament. But this does still mean a young woman who in most cases was young and not sexually active. In, but here's the interesting thing about this, by the way, because we see two fulfillments in this passage. We see an immediate fulfillment to this prophecy, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute. And then 700 years later, we see the, the, the fulfillment, which is about Jesus. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, the same passage is translated more consistent to our word virgin. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 23, references the Greek version of the passage, not the Hebrew version. Now, what this means is that a couple hundred years before Christ, the uh, Ptolemy, who was a Greek emperor, asked the Hebrew people to translate their scriptures into Greek. And at that time, the Greek translators, the he they were Jewish, the Jewish people referenced and, and translated this very verse... Isaiah 7:14, a very specific word meaning a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They didn't use the word maiden. And by Jesus' day, his birth, Matthew references this scripture about the miraculous birth of Jesus. So there are two likely fulfillments to this, to this prophecy. The first fulfillment is referenced in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1 and 3. The immediate fulfillment would be the child will be Maharshala Hashbaz. We'll ask you to pronounce that later. Um, and you'll probably do better than me. Maharshala Hashbaz. That's uh, the son of Isaiah. I have, I have to give Isaiah credit for naming his son this very long, lengthy name, which had significance. Some suggest the immediate fulfillment could also be the son of Ahaz, which will be Hezekiah or someone else during Isaiah's day. But the long-term secondary fulfillment of this passage is clearly Jesus, as we see in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 23. Also, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, talks about a son will be born, a prince will be given to you, and he will be the prince of peace, king of kings, mighty savior, mighty God. I misparaphrased uh, that passage. But Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, is clear that this passage is a messianic passage as has always been known in the history of Christianity. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophecy is spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. What is awesome about this, this Prophecy given by Isaiah is fulfilled in Jesus' birth. It is fulfilled in Jesus' birth. This is fulfilled. This is from the Lord. This is a prophecy. But now notice, 
that he is also to be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us, God with us. And God is still with us today, by the way. God is still with us. Uh, and this is what sets us apart as, Christian, as Christians. Think about the awesome ramifications in this passage. God came down to be one of us. What sets us apart as Christians is that God became one of us. But I would even go further than that. God did not only become one of us, God is still one of us. And also, God was not only with us for a time, God is still with us. Do we realize the ramifications of this? God is with us right now, today. You know the song oftentimes we sing around Resurrection Sunday? We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, no, no matter what men must say. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. God came down and became one of us, and God is still with us today. This prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 1, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, which um, Tyler and Addison read these two passages fabulously. You know, I want to play a passage from this moving the nativity story. So, Ken, if you would like to, Ken and Nancy, Nancy's back there too, thank you. Uh, go ahead and drag that over and get it ready to play. In this, path, in this little account in the nativity story, just go ahead and maximize the Google Chrome and you should see it there. Hopefully, there we go. So go ahead and play this. This is an account of an angel visiting Joseph about this prophecy and fulfillment. That's Joseph, and they're threatening to stone Mary. It's just a vision he's having. I don't know if you can see that. That's a dove flying away. There you go.
So that's Joseph being visited by an angel because, and Matthew's gospel records that, because Joseph was going to divorce Mary quietly. They were engaged, but under the Jewish customs, an engagement was a very formal ceremony. And it took an actual formal divorce to separate the engagement. And Mary, it, it, by, all, by, by what people would have thought, they would have thought that uh, it was an adulterous relationship. They would have thought that somebody, they knew Joseph was not the father. They weren't even married yet. And uh, Joseph was visited by an angel, and the angel encouraged him, and he obeyed to take Mary as his wife. And I don't know if you could hear, Mary said to Joseph, you believe me, then Mary said to Joseph, they won't look at us the same. And they wouldn't. They would have looked, been looked down upon all their life. But this is how God became one of us. This is how God became one of us. And you know, this idea of the child being Emmanuel is God with us, and that separates us from other people. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. I'm sorry, from other, relig other religions. C.S. Lewis wrote, The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. I love that. An atheist and a Christian were engaged in an intense public debate. On the blackboard behind the podium, the atheist printed in large capital letters, God is nowhere. God is nowhere. When the Christian rose to offer his, rebu his rebuttal, uh, he rubbed out the W at the beginning of where and added that letter to the preceding word no. Then the statement read, God is now here. God is now here. Let's look at some applications. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. At one time I heard Pastor Tony Evans, he's pictured there, Tony Evans shared an amazing story about this idea of God being with us. God being with, with us. And as that, psalm show, as that psalm says, God does not sleep. God does not slumber. He is, he is with us. Uh, Tony Evans was on a cruise for his radio ministry. It's a radio ministry, and they had uh, friends of their radio ministry cruise, and they were out off in the Pacific off the coast of Alaska, and they, run into, they ran into some heavy seas, huge waves, 40 to 50 foot waves, just huge waves, or not, not 40 to 50 feet, 35 or so, I think I recollect him saying. It was really bad. People were vomiting. Things are moving all over the place. It was really bad, and Tony Evans' wife managed the cruise and the preparation. And, and she felt bad for all the people that came. So she got frustrated, and so she calls the captain of the, of the cruise ship. She calls the captain of the cruise ship, and, and she complains. And the assistant to the captain calls her back. Or the, the, the XO calls her back. And the uh, first mate says, the captain wants you to do two things. First, he wants you to go to sleep. Secondly, you can go to sleep. Because I will be staying awake to pilot the ship through the storm. I, the captain, will be staying awake to pilot the ship through the storm. Psalm 121, which I just wrote, read, Psalm 121, which I just read, and this idea of God being with us, of Emmanuel, is telling us that God is with us and he is like the captain. He is with us, he is awake, guiding us through the storms of life. God is with us, guiding us through, piloting us through the storms of life. And you realize the very special significance of that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say there will not be any storms in life. Nowhere in the Bible does it say there will not be storms in life. 
But God is with us. God is with us through the storms in life. Don't miss, don't miss the initial importance in this passage. Jesus came and lived a life as God with us. Jesus died for our sins and then rose again. So Jesus is still alive and he sent his Holy Spirit to live with us now. And that is why he's still with us today. He is with us through the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, and that is how he's with us today. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The Holy Spirit is with us. God is with us. Live like that. But, you know, I have one important application before I give you some others. If we are living in sin and or if we are not seeking God, we are not welcoming God to be with us. Sin technically is a break in relationship. When we are living in sin, unrepented of sin, condoned, unrepented of sin, we have a broken fellowship with God the Father. And I dare say he's not with you. He wants to be, but you need to repent and turn your life to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Further, sometimes we live in sins of omission. These are things that we don't do that we should do. If we are not welcoming Jesus in by spending time in a relationship with him, we are not in a relationship with him. I said it last week. Let's try an experiment. I don't know if any of you tried it in the past week. Try eating once a week. You had breakfast this morning. Don't eat for another week. That's what many of us do spiritually. Some of us try to just only eat once a month or once every two months or twice a year. You know, and what I'm talking about spiritually, we're only nourishing ourselves spiritually once a week when we come to church. We're not opening our Bible through the week. We're not spending time in prayer. We're not going to Bible study. We're not going to Sunday school. These are spiritual disciplines. You can't live as a human body only eating once a week. And you're not going to live spiritually if you're only eating once a week as well. You're not welcoming Jesus in. And logically... You don't have a relationship with Jesus if you live that way. And logically, there's a sin barrier between you and Christ because God, Jesus is there saying, spend time with me. Spend time with me. And you're saying, I got somewhere to go. I got to play video games. I got somewhere to go. It's Law and Order's on tonight, you know. I got somewhere to go. I got to work a whole lot, 75 hours this week, and, and no one's disputing that. But Jesus is saying, your work will go a lot better if you spend time with me. Jesus is saying, spend time with me. And what sometimes frustrates me is there's people... And some of you, maybe many of you, maybe all of you, believe we can lose our salvation. But you don't live that way. You don't live that way. We're called to repent and turn our lives over to Jesus and welcome him in. That's how we really have God with us. And any time there's sin there, there's a break in a relationship. You sin against your, your, your spouse or your friend or your family member by cussing them out or I'm just trying to make something up or lying or something to them. There's a break in a relationship with them until you repent. And you sin against God. There's a break in that relationship until you repent to God as well. 
There's also a break in that relationship until you repent to the people you sinned against. If I sin against Megan, I need to repent to Megan. But if our kids observe my sin against her, I need to repent to them too. I need to tell them I was wrong. If I sin against my family by not being a spiritual leader, which I'm called to do, by skipping church for frivolous reasons, which would be a bigger problem because I'm the pastor, but uh, if I do that, I need to repent to my children and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I have not been the spiritual leader that God has called me to do, called me to be. I need to repent to my kids. There's public repentance for public sins. Invite God in. That's one application here. God with us means that he cares about us. Do you realize that? God cares about us. And that is amazing. God with us means that we are never alone. If you're welcoming, Jesus wants to be in a close relationship with you. It's all in your hands. It's all in your hands. Welcoming him in. Welcoming him in. And when you welcome Jesus in, you are never alone because he is with us. God with us means that we do not have to worry about the future because he is with us. No matter what you face in the future, God is with us. God with us means that the creator of all can also be with his creation. God is a creator of the universe, a creator of the galaxies, a creator of every dimension that exists. It boggles my mind to imagine and think about how great everything is out there. And he's also with his creation. That's amazing. God with us means that we have the architect of creation with us. He's a designer, the architect of creation. He's with us. God with us means that if, we, if he is with us, he can support and guide us. He wants to. Many times we blame God for things that's our own fault. <laughs> when we don't seek him, he can't help us. He wants to help us. He wants to guide us. God with us means that he can and has communicated to us. Isn't that amazing? God communicates to us. God became part of his creation. Don't let yourself get desensitized to this. We must live with an understanding of this awesome truth that God is with us. We must live with an application of this awesome truth that God is with us. Apply it to your lives when you go home. We must live allowing God through Jesus to soothe our needs as he is with us. Let Jesus meet your needs. Not the many other things. Jesus came, God came, and lived amongst us. He died for us in our place, but he rose again and he is still with us. Praise God. A woman was doing her last-minute Christmas shopping at a crowded mall. She was tired of fighting the crowd. She was tired of standing in lines. She was tired of fighting her way down long aisles looking for a gift that had sold out days before. Her arms were full of bulky packages. When an elevator door opened, it was full. The occupants of the elevator grudgingly tightened ranks to allow a small space for her and her load. As the doors closed, she blurted out, Whoever is responsible for this whole Christmas thing ought to be arrested, strung up, and shot. A few others nodded their heads or grunted in agreement. Then from somewhere in the back of the elevator came a single voice that said, Don't worry, they already crucified him. One of my prayers for myself, for you, for the church I serve, for my children, is that we have a biblical worldview. We have a biblical worldview. We view the world through the lens, the spectacles, the eyeglasses, the contact lenses of the Bible. And if you notice during the season, there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with Christ in Christmas. And so I was watching a Christmas movie with Mercedes and Abigail yesterday, and I said, I paused it, and I want to say, look, you can get enjoyment from this Christmas movie, but notice this really isn't what Christmas is about. It's not about Jesus at all. <laughs> it's not about Christ. 
The Puritans outlawed Christmas because of that. By the 1600s in England, Christmas became partying and drinking and things like that. So they outlawed Christmas. It didn't work. Uh, that's what the 12 Days of Christmas song is about. It's a coded song about celebrating Christmas. I hope and pray that you all have a biblical worldview over this next month as we head to the Christmas season. Do you make it truly about Jesus? Do you spend time with the Lord in devotions? I lead a discipleship training class, and I would love to help you through it by holding you accountable to build spiritual habits. It takes accountability to, to, to get used to spending time in God's word, time in prayer. And I would caution all of you, don't rely too much on our daily breads. We put them out there, they, they have their purpose. And so do, so do Today in the Word by Moody Bible Institute. But make sure you are actually getting into the Bible in your devotional life. You need to be in God's Word. This is what's inspired. God's, the, the Bible is inspired, not our daily breads or anything else. Spend time in God's Word. Renew your relationship with Christ. And the first step here is examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Do you need to repent of anything? Don't just look for sins of commission, lying, cheating, stealing. Those are sins of commission. Look for sins of omission that you need to repent of. Repent of not spending time with the Lord. Repent of not giving God preeminence in your life. Repent of not being a spiritual leader in the home. Repent of not modeling that. Repent of, you know, if we're putting other things in front of Christ and we're a father, we're a parent, we're modeling that for our children. And we need to repent of that. That is sinful. That is idolatry. Nothing should go in front of Christ. And we have individual spiritual disciplines and corporate spiritual disciplines. Corporate spiritual disciplines are worship right now, Sunday school, small groups, Bible studies, meeting with a prayer partner. Individual spiritual disciplines are your daily devotions. If one suffers, they both suffer. The early church would have known nothing about our individualistic Christianity, which we have today. And we are shameful. And we have an embarrassment of resources to grow spiritually. Just an embarrassment of resources. Take advantage of them. And follow Jesus. Of course, the first step is surrendering to Jesus. And I want to ask all of you. Actually, let's bow our heads, close our eyes in prayer right now. I want to ask you a personal question. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you come to a point in your life where you said, Jesus, I'm surrendering to you. I'm confessing that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe in you. Jesus is the only Savior. I'm trusting in you and committing to you. If you have not done that, today is a day of salvation. Surrender your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to Christ. There are confess, believe, trust, commit. We confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. That is repentance. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's turning our life around. I was following the world. I'm going to follow Jesus now. The second verb is believe. Believe in Jesus as the only Savior. They died on the cross for your sins and rose again. These the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. The third verb is trust, and the fourth is commit. We're called to commit to Jesus. We are called to firmly make the decision to be with Jesus in order to become like him and to learn and do all that he says and arrange our affairs around him. We are called to arrange our affairs around Jesus. If you have not done that, today is a day of salvation. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit's nudging. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus down to become one of us, 
to live a life fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for these prophecies in the Bible. Over 300 having to do with Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection, proving the validity of the scriptures. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here today who has never surrendered their life to you, may they do so today. Lord God, if there's people here who have surrendered, but they're not living surrendered, they're not living for you, they're disconnected from you, they don't have a relationship with you, they're not spending time with you in prayer and in the scriptures, they're not committed to the bride of Christ, your church. Lord God, I pray that today will be the day of repentance. Today will be the day of turning our life back to you. And Lord God, I know we're out, we're, we are without excuse. We can't get to heaven and say, nobody told me, because everyone's here is being told time and time again, repent and follow Jesus. Lord God, if anyone here would like to turn their life to you, may they respond in a prayer like this. If you would like to give your life to Jesus right now, surrender to him, or rededicate your life to him, say this prayer with me. You're not saved by the prayer, you're saved by what's in your heart. But say a simple prayer like this to Jesus. It's telling God what you're doing. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I'm repenting of my sins right now. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm committing my life to you, Lord, and trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I am firmly making the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say. And I'm going to arrange my affairs around you. I'm going to make you Lord of my life. Lord God, help us all living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with somebody today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Tell me as you walk out. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, uh, talk to me. I would love to talk to you. There won't be judgment. If you're an atheist or an agnostic or a deist or a Buddhist Muslim, I don't care. Talk to me. I would love to help you out. If you're a Christian and you have doubts, don't be afraid of those doubts. Talk to me. I would love to help you and give you some resources to strengthen and encourage your faith. And I'm going to invite Steve for the closing hymn. If the Holy Spirit has prompted you and you want to come forward, the altars are open. If you want to come forward for prayer, the altars are always open.